I've really enjoyed, I, I don't know about you, but the, the decor up here, in fact, Mary and I are moving into that cabin this Thursday. Uh, and, but a couple of our staff members and a bunch of volunteers who just have way more artistic ability than I do put all of this together and really grateful for that. We've had a few people have said, hey, yeah, you can give them a hand. Yeah, really thankful for that. We've had a few people who've asked us, they said, have you ever thought about doing a, a live manger scene? Like, that would be so cool. And I think it would be cool as well, except that I also read the news and I see some things that have happened with live manger scenes. Have you seen some of these? Let me just tell you a couple real, real fast. So there was one in Texas a year ago where some of the sheep broke loose from their manger scene responsibilities. And they dragged behind them a bale of hay that was supposed to keep them in place. And I quote the paper, they ran down some little old ladies singing Christmas carols. <laughs> Last Christmas, there was a camel featured in a, this, this church went like a bum beyond. Now they're just sheep or whatever. They got a camel. So featured in a drive through nativity scene in Bonner Springs, Kansas, this camel made a break for it after the halter broke. <laughs> That's, that is legit the picture from last year. This camel going down, decided to visit Walgreens, stop at Chick-fil-A, uh, found its way to a golf course where the police, this would have been like, I wonder how much they were laughing. They all get in golf carts, they start driving around. What they didn't know, and I didn't know, is that camels can go, do you know how fast? 40 miles per hour. That's like faster than most golf carts, golf carts, unfortunately. So eventually, they were able to get that, uh, uh, you know, lasso, that camel. The locals dubbed that camel Forest Hump. Um, that's true. That's true. Okay, just one more. So my family and I, we like to go to North Carolina to the beach. Mary's from North Carolina, so every, every good year includes a trip to the beach. And so we often go to Kiri Beach, Carolina Beach. This past week, maybe you saw this, this was in the news just a couple of days ago. They made headlines when their live nativity scene from one of the churches there, when a pair of cows staged a jailbreak from the nativity scene. And they, they dove into the river, um, that's, that's, uh, that's what they actually did. I think secretly what they really, these heifers wanted to do was they were, they were aiming to do that right there, right? <laughs> okay, now that picture is fake. But isn't this, don't we all dream about doing something like that? So if you ever wonder why doesn't Grace Church do live nativity scenes, not to mention some of the droppings that would be left behind, that is the reason why. Now the tradition of reenactment, just a little curiosity here, if you're like, historical factoids. St. Francis of Assisi, you heard his name? He, we have some prayers and writings of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, he was the first one, according to history, that in 1223 AD had the first live nativity scene in, in Grecio, Italy. And it was such a hit, they had a little doll in the manger and they had some other live animals that the next year, other communities, and, and they said within 100 years, virtually every community, every parish in Italy had a live nativity scene by the 1300s. And even today, we have them globally. You'll see this uh, happening. And there have been lots of fun stories ever since. If you just, uh, you know, Google manger mishaps, uh, don't do it right now. I don't want any breakout of laughter while we're, you know, here. But, but uh, that's, that's uh, what's been happening. But anyhow, 
You look at something like that, you're driving through a neighbor and you see the crash or whatever, and someone might wonder, is that, I mean, it's a nice story, we read about Jesus, you know, is this baby born, we love babies. But what's actually the reason for Christmas? Like if someone were to ask you, they were to say, so, so why did that baby have to come, what would you say? Or as we've been asking around here, if Christmas is the solution, what's the problem? If Christmas is the answer, what's, what's the question? And so we've been talking about that during this month of December, and our premise is this, that Christmas makes a whole lot more sense when you know how what? The story begins. That when you begin to grasp the beginning of human history from the Bible's account, you have a better grasp on the wonder of Christmas, what it's all about, and why it truly is, is a highlight holiday that in, in a historical event that has changed the lives of people all over the globe and throughout the centuries. So what happened at the very beginning? If, if it if Christmas is best understood when you know how the story begins, how did, the story, how did human history begin? Well, in, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we read how God created everything, and he looked at it, and he said it was what? Very good, right? It was very good. In fact, it was perfect. Everything God made. Adam and Eve's relationship was amazing. Their relationship with God was authentic and personal. Their health was perfect. The environment was amazing. I'll just say there was no 30 degrees below zero with the windshield factor in the Garden of Eden, right? And, and so it was amazing. Everything was good. But within a couple of pages of Scripture history, they go off the rails. What happens? Adam and Eve decide to go their own way. They're like, you know, God, we... We just think, and this one over here, we're going to do it our way. And, they, and there's, there's rebellion, and they, you do the one thing that God asked them not to do. And there's this incursion, this invasion of evil that comes into the world. And I wonder if Adam and Eve had any idea the ramifications of the decision they made, if they had any sense of this is going to change the course of history. Sir Isaac Newton, when he was working for months on his scientific inquiries into the core of the physical universe, um, week after week, he would stay up late at night, and by the light of kennel, he would, he would just be writing furiously and figuring things out, and and, well, on, and beside him would sit his, his very loved dog. One night, Isaac Newton uh, gets up and makes his way to another room in his living quarters. And his dog gets up behind him, follow him, inadvertently bumps the desk and knocks the candle off the desk onto the floor where all of Isaac Newton's papers are. He's several steps ahead, doesn't know what happened until he comes back and he's horrified, crushed to find that the papers on which he had spent months were consumed by flames in moments. All of his seminal work, that it was just, that, that he, had, he, had, he had just invested, he, there were no Google Docs at that time and Word Doc, you know, this was, it was gone. And the story is that he just, he put his 
head in his hands, and he, and he just, he, he wept. This sense of, I can't believe what happened. And the story goes that he began to gently stroke his dog and just to himself or to no one else said, you will never, never know what you have done. You will never, never know what you have done. You know, those are the same words that could be spoken to Adam and Eve way back in the beginning. You know the problem that, that they had, you, you will never, never know what you have done. That, that every broken relationship, every form of injustice, every tragic death, every natural disaster, every angry outburst, every disease that racks our body, every bitter betrayal, every addiction, all stems from that fateful decision that Adam and Eve made that had no idea would impact the course of human history. You will never, never know what you have done. You know, by Genesis 5, the opening pages of Scripture, I mean, just you're a couple pages into the first book of the Bible, and you read this little phrase over in Genesis chapter 5 about the people who were living at that time. And here's what it, here's what it says. It says, this person... Uh, lived so many years, had this, these kids, and then they died. And then this person lived and had these many kids, and then they died. And this person lived this many kids, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And it's this refrain that is, that is repeated eight times in Genesis chapter five. And the idea is this, that this one tragic uh, act of rebellion against God led to these consequences in this invasion of death. And you read this summary statement in Romans chapter five, it says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought what? Brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. So if we have a tendency to go, well, you know, if it weren't for them, I'd, you know, we'd be great. No, it says, no, we, we all sin. So really we're all responsible in a sense. And we still face the reality of death today. My assistant, uh, Luann, great teammate, and she came to me a few days, she wrote, and she said, wow, this has been a tough month in terms of funerals. I think I've been a part of six funerals in the last, like, 24 days. And stood by people that I, I love who have, are grieving, someone that, you know, they've really cared about, and uh, many of you, you face the loss of a loved one, you might be going, hey, John, you gotta get some good news here. You're talking about death a lot. You can't understand the wonder of Christmas until you understand the problem that Christmas came to solve. Does that make sense? Christmas is like coming to act two of the play of history. And if you missed act one, you don't really understand fully if you don't know how the story begins. And so there's something about the reality of death that, that grips us and that every one of us, the certainty of death that we go, okay, so how does Christmas address that? I'm glad you asked. I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter five. That's about three quarters of the way through your Bible, Romans chapter five. If you don't have a paper Bible, the Bible app on your phone is a great place, uh, great free download to have. And, and if you miss notes on the way in at the tables, we do that Every week we have notes that you can follow along and have some of the blanks and the scriptures we're gonna use. 
on our website, just go to gracemay.org, you'll see our bulletin, and the bulletin is printable or fill in notes, and you can look there as well. So our series this month has been Creation of Christmas, looking at how the story begins, and then how Christmas answers some of the problems of the world today. And so we've seen that Jesus is God's answer to the biggest questions, how he rescues us from the curse, the curse that came in the garden how he hears the groans of our sufferings, that Jesus still has an ear. He listens to you and to me and hears our groans, how he removes the weight of our regret, that all of us, we have this stuff that we care, we go, oh my, I can't believe I did that. And when Jesus came, he, he doesn't just cover it, he, he removes it. So what about the issue of our mortality? Well, this, this is maybe because some of you know my own story, that I was, I was petrified of death as a kid because I, I encountered, we had a few people, either friends of the family or in our neighborhood that were killed as children, and it really struck me that you don't have to be old to die. And so I wondered, I thought, what? And so the gift that we wanna look at today is the gift of, of everlasting life, offered to all of us, and, and it answers one of the biggest fears we face about death. Here's how the Apostle Paul, if you look at Romans chapter five, verse 21, I'm reading from the New Living Translation on this one, Here's what it says, verse 21. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to what? To death. There, there it is again. Now, this is the Christmas story. God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ. One chapter over, Romans chapter six, the very last verse, verse 23 says this, sort of a repeat. The wages of sin, the consequences of sin is what? Is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of a gift is it? It's, it's a free gift, that's right. It, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. You know, sometimes you have these awkward exchanges in December where someone, you know, shows up with a gift and you're like, oh my goodness, like I better go on Amazon and see what I can send them a box of chocolate or something or whatever. You know, you've, sometimes you have this sense of, should we be giving gifts? And, and you sort of feel like there's a sense of, well, I gave them and they're gonna. But with this right here, this is, a, we could never pay for this gift. Like this is a gift that God just says, I came to give, it's a free gift. The gift of, of life, life forever. And here's what Jesus did. You don't have to turn here, but Hebrews 2 just says it so beautifully. I love this passage. Jesus shared in our humanity. In other words, he became one of us so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their what? Their fear of death. He became one of us to conquer death, to overcome it with his own resurrection, and then to offer the gift of life as a free gift to all who would trust in him. He broke the power of death. He frees us from the grip of the fear of death. One of the things as a pastor that I, I get to do, and I, I mean that, I get to do is uh, I get to be with people often at the very last days or even sometimes hours of their life. Someone will call me up and say, hey, Pastor John, my, you know, my, my spouse, my mom, my child, whoever is, I think they're in their last, their last day. And would it be possible for you, maybe Mary, to come and visit? And if I can do that, I, I like to do that. Come and just pray with the family and share in their the grief. And I can tell you that being with a number of people, a lot of people in those final moments, that there's a difference 
between someone who has, knows they have the gift of eternal life and someone who, who isn't really sure. I'll just say it became personal again this past year. Some of you know that my sister Julie and I, uh, who are part of the Grace family, we're the two, the nine kids who live in, in the Cleveland area, our mother died this past January. But it was a year ago today that was actually her final, Christmas, her final service ever at Grace Church. And there she is holding her candle. She was over in the front row over here. And, uh, and so mom is there. The next picture is two of my sisters, Jessica and Kristen, who were visiting. And the next morning, mom came over for Christmas breakfast, and we had a great time. We didn't know that mom had COVID at the time, the beginning. So when we call the doctor, he comes to her place, and he calls us as a family aside, and he says, your mom has seven to 10 days left to live. We just had dinner with mom. Like, her mind was sharp. You know, if ever my memory con conflicted with mom's memory, we usually went with her memory. Like, it was just, it was so good. So we're talking to mom, and, and so he tells us this privately. So we have the responsibility to tell mom, mom, you have like seven to 10 days. And, uh, and, and then, and then uh, heaven awaits. What would you do if someone told you that? You came in and, and someone told you, they said, you, you have seven to 10 days. How, I mean, what, what would that do to you? My mom was like, uh, I mean, we had tears and, you know, we, you always would love to have more time. But my mom had no fear of death. You might have a fear of how you're going to die, but she didn't fear what came after death. In fact, she told us, she goes, I can't wait to see Jesus. Even before it was about seeing dad, I can't wait to see Jesus. A couple years before that, when mom was probably like 83, mom and I were talking, and she asked me about her finances and what I thought, and, and, and she goes, do you think I have enough, you know, for my, the rest of my life? And I said, well, mom, you're, your mom lived to be 96, and your dad lived to be 100, so you might live another, like, 15 years. And she goes, heavens, no. <laughs> she, I said, well, maybe, like, seven. And she goes, uh, no. No, I really hope I'm not, because her body was beginning to decline, and, you know, she dealt with a lot of pain. Mom was free of the fear of death. It's a great way to live, to say, it's not that I want to die, but when my time comes, I, I know. Now, some of them like, oh, your mom was 86, you know, and, and, and I, I've got a lot of time, and I'm only 27, and, you know, and, but you never know, right? Not everybody gets seven to 10 days. A lot of people don't even get seven to 10 minutes. You see the action on the turnpike yesterday out by Sandusky or whatever it was, 50-plus cars in a pileup, people going, coming home from college, you know, they're heading to their family, and four people are killed like that. Not that far from here. You just never know. So the question is, how can we be ready? Friends, this is the gift of Christmas, that Jesus came to bring eternal life and it's given to all who receive him. That's what the Bible says, that when you believe that he is who he claimed to be, he's God the Son, he actually became one of us lived a life without regret, perfect, and then became the sacrifice in our place and took the weight of all my sin, our penalty, took the penalty we deserve and said, I will pay that for you. I will die so that you can live. I'll take your sins so that you can be clean, that you can live forever. 
And here's the clear teaching of the Bible. How you respond to that offer determines where you'll spend your eternity. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3. He talks about eternal life, everlasting life a lot in the Gospel of John. And here's what he says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. In other words, if you stiff arm, there's a heaven and hell, the real place is if you stiff arm Jesus in this life and go, you know what, really not into that, that's not my cup of tea, and you stiff arm him, what you're doing is if you never change from that posture, you're making that decision for all your eternity. I, I, I want to I live my eternity on my own. And it'll be horrific. But for those who say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I can't make it to heaven without him, and I can't be forgiven without him, and so I give my life to him, it, it changes everything. And you can know that when you come to the last page of your earthly existence, and the page turns, and you enter your afterlife, wow, it's the gift of Christmas. That Christmas is the answer to the question of our mortality. It's the solution to the problem of this invasion of, of death. Some might go, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if anybody can really know for sure. And I guess what I'd say is this. Wouldn't you agree that it's too important of a topic to put in the back burner and to go, you know, at some point in my life when I'm feeling I've got more time and I'm more reflective, I'm older, I'll, I'll pay attention to that. You know how long you're gonna live, Right? And, and, and so to be able to say, I, I want to seek answer to this. I want to know. You know, when someone hesitates to believe in Christ, we're having a conversation. Maybe I'm on a plane and, and they find I'm, a, you know, whatever, a pastor and we start talking about, they want to talk about religion or whatever. And let's say that they follow a different, you know, a completely different uh, religious viewpoint or worldview or they don't believe at all. They're just like, I'm sort of an atheist and I, I don't really, I think when you come to the end of this life, you know, you become fertilizer for the ground and that my my question to them, if, it, if, if the conversation is going this direction, is to say, so can I just ask you this? How does your worldview, like, how would you say that it gives you a sense of meaning in life? Like, how does it answer the question of where we came from? And what's the whole purpose of, like, why should I even exist? And when I come to the end of this relatively short life, what happens to me in the afterlife? Like, does your... Does your viewpoint, does your worldview satis give a satisfying answer for your own mortality? Someone might go, well, Jonathan, are you absolutely sure? Do you have any doubts? Yeah, I do. That might surprise some people to go, pastors have doubts? Yeah, pastors have doubts. There are some things in the scriptures I have a hard time wrapping my brain around. There are certain experiences in life that I go, I don't really know. I don't know how to describe that. I don't know why God would allow that. But what I can say is this, that I've, I, I, I believe that the scriptures make the best sense of human history, of a world that was created, how it went off the rails, how did God break into our world to bring a solution, and how can I become and you become part of the story that's not only for the rest of our earthly life, but for our forever after. And more than that, I think the evidence that Jesus came back from death is a game changer, and I go, if he really came back from death, then I can trust what he says. And even if I have my doubts, there's evidence for me that's beyond reasonable doubt. So let me ask you this question, what about you? 
do you believe? Do you have a sense of confidence that this gift of Christmas of eternal life is yours? You know, I love how the Apostle Peter puts it. There's a time in Jesus' teaching that he says some very hard things, and a lot of his disciples began to just, you know, drift away, left him. And Jesus asks his closest followers, are you going to leave me as well? And they're struggling with what he's just said. And, and Peter says this, he goes, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of what? Of eternal life. That he's the answer. And friends, when we turn to Jesus, here's the amazing thing. You can know for sure that heaven is your ultimate home. Here's what the Apostle John says. He says, I've written this to you. I've written these words so that to you believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not hope, not like, well, you know, we'll see what happens here. You, you may know. Would you say those three words with me? Ready? You may know. You can know. You can have confidence. So the question might be, how? Jesus says, whoever believes in me and receives me. You don't have to jump through all kinds of religious hoops. You don't have to be, you know, it's just saying, Jesus, I, I put my trust in you. And I want you to come into my life. Friends, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other system of faith, every other major religion in the world. In every other major religion, there's a clear distinction between the person who is like the founder of the religion or the leader and, and their teaching. So one person put it this way. They said, Muhammad points to the Quran. Buddha to the noble path. Krishna to his philosophizing, Zoroaster to his ethics. They're all teachers who point to a particular way. For instance, it's not Buddha who himself delivers you. In, instead, it's his noble truths that instruct you. It's, it's not Muhammad who comes into your life and transforms you. Instead, they would say, it's the beauty of the Quran that woos you. It's very different in Christianity. Because Jesus doesn't just point us to say, here's the scriptures. Jesus says, I'm not just gonna point you to a path. I am the path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just pointing you to a particular way. He's saying, you can invite me to come into your life and I will transform you. I will make you the person that you were always intended to be. I'm the, the good shepherd. I'm the door. Jesus doesn't simply point us to a teaching. He points us to himself. And he says, if you'll have me, I'll come in. And friends, he's so deserving of that place in our lives. So the choice is ours. Do we receive him or not? Michael Gerson was a presidential advisor for a number of years um, and a speechwriter and later became a respected columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, brilliant guy. Uh, and he passed away at about the age of 50 about six weeks ago. Maybe you read some of his, I think, twice-a-week columns in the Washington Post, but one of his final columns in September, he wrote this. He was a follower of Jesus, and here's what Michael Gerson wrote. He said, many are haunted by Jesus' words, are drawn to emulate his person and find him mysteriously present in their lives. Billions of human beings, Roman emperors and Celtic tribesmen, Byzantine artists and medieval peasants, Puritan settlers and enslaved Africans, 
Honduran farmers and Chinese house church leaders have claimed to feel Christ's comfort in their suffering, his guidance in their confusion, his company in their loneliness, and his welcome at the hour of their death. If this is not the work of God, it is among the strangest developments in the human story. What he's saying is this. If it's all a legend about Jesus, he's saying it's a most remarkable thing that millions, even billions of people around the globe, across the centuries, brilliant minds and small children have found Jesus to be their comfort and suffering, guidance in their confusion, company in their loneliness, and his welcome at the hour of their death. So quote this in your notes if you want to take a look at that more. Here's a remaining question. Have you made it personal in your life? Have you come to the place of saying, Jesus, I need you in my life? You know, he never turns anybody away. That's the amazing thing. You've never done too much where he won't take you back. There's a gift um, that has your name on it. We... Um, at our home, maybe yours is probably similar, but tomorrow morning we'll gather around the tree and we'll honor Jesus and then we'll begin to get some gifts from under the tree and we'll take one out and say, oh, this is for Joy, this is for Anna, this is for Xavier, this is for Andrew, and, and then we'll have some of our other kids we're gonna see a little bit later this week and, and there'll be maybe one for Jonathan and, and it's gonna be like, this, is, this is, has your name on it. It's for you. When Jesus came that very first Christmas, he, he, he gave a gift that has your name on it. Like it's for you personally. It's not just for people in the first century. He came for you and for me. And the question is, will we receive the gift and allow Christ to transform us and to know for sure that when the end of this earthly life comes, we know where we're gonna spend our forever after. That's the gift of Christmas. I would love to pray for all of us that we'll know him better and find him to be our ever-present friend. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're just in awe today of you to think that you, God and very flesh, would come to become one of us, to rescue us, to save us, and to adopt us into your family. Jesus, thank you. Lord, my prayer is that each of us will acknowledge you for who you are, accept your invitation and know you better and discover the purpose that you have for our lives. So Lord, would you reveal yourself to each one, we pray. Bless them, show your faithfulness to them. And Lord, help us to follow you in a way that you deserve. We love you and we honor you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.